Hey devs, you're tuning into the debug log number 99. So a very special shout out to Nicholas Covington for inspiring me to do an episode like this, uh, at least the editing part of it. He recommended I listen to Radiolab and replicate what they do for their interviews and that's what I tried to do. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoy it. It's a new style, new flavor of editing for me. Uh, took me a long time so I might not ever do this again. Anyway, this is the Debug Log, episode 99. Listening to the Debug Log, a podcast about game development. My name is Abino Para, and I am hosting this one all by my lonesome. I actually have uh, three other interviewees on the show with me, and it is a great episode. I hope you're excited. Let's get right into it. So yeah, for this interview, I actually had the privilege of bringing in three game industry veterans. Uh, first up was Mira Marquez, uh, who was a UI lead at Iron Tiger, aka Sprockets. And I asked her to go into a little bit about her background. I actually originally started off in game dev as a character artist and 3D modeler. And I've been in game dev for the past eight years. Um, and then after a couple studio closures and kind of uh, working more with startups, I transitioned to do UI and UX design and had been doing that for pretty much the past like four years. She goes on to mention that she danced between jobs in the game industry and other tech startups, eventually finding herself at an autonomous drone company. Next up was Jim Diaz, an audio engineer at Iron Tiger, and he described his game development background as... Sound designer. I've been doing game dev. I started in 1999 at LucasArts in test. I was in test for about three years. I did... Uh, a year as a, as a, you know, just a kind of a core tester where I just tested one game for a period of time. And then I, you know, became what they called a breaker and I would go around and I would work on multiple projects and just break them essentially. And so Jim's long game dev career started in the land of QA as the aforementioned breaker. And eventually he moved on to platform and hardware compatibility testing. It wasn't until later that he actually started in audio. In 2002, I transitioned into audio. Um, I uh, started out as a sound designer. Um, I was one of two people ever in the history of uh, LucasArts to go from QA into audio. So I was kind of very lucky with that. And uh, He goes on to uh, say that he attended the Academy of Art really in San Francisco, which is where he found his love for game development by way of the game Dark Forces Jedi Knight, which he played to completion in just a few weeks. He eventually wraps things up at college and goes to work for LucasArts and then Activision and eventually doing contract work for companies like Sega working on Iron Man 2, which is where he experienced his first studio closure. So, um, the, my most recent studio closure, which we all experienced together, yay, um, was my second in a year and a half. Mm. And it was also my second for my second permanent position that I've had in a year and a half. And this is my 20th year. So um, I spent a good seven years doing freelance and, and contract work before, you know, finally getting something permanent, which both neither, neither of those worked out. So now I'm, and, uh, and since the, the closure, I haven't really, I've been talking to a lot of people, but haven't quite secured anything yet. Gotcha. Yeah, that that's an extended history of game <laughs> development. And we're going to get into all of the details on these last two closures for you in particular. Right. Uh, just a, a random note. I actually thought it was really cool that out of college, like your your primary, I guess, kind of catalyst that got you into games was Star Wars and you jumped directly into Star Wars. Yeah. Which is yeah, kind of crazy. Yeah, it was it was totally serendipitous too. I mean it was right. just kind of it, it just happened to work out, you know, the same guy who lent me the game found a a, a job listing for for LucasArts wow. and he's like, here, check this out. And, I, and finally to round things out, we had Jeffrey Nahashan, who is actually a friend of the podcast. He's been on the show before, episode ninety, I believe, about world building. So if you haven't checked that out, please do so. It's a good listen. Anyway, Jeff goes into a little bit more about his background and where he's been. Well, I haven't really been anywhere since I've been on the show. Um, but uh, yeah, brief overview. Uh, started game dev back in checking the Wikipedia, 1995. Ooh, you're longer than me. Um, I took a break in between. Okay. So, um, yeah, 1995 and then took a break and came back in 1998 
Um, and that was an intern for Lucas Learning. So I was in the same building as you for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, I worked on I was, some learning games. I was processing HR forms. So I was <laughs> seeing everybody's uh, applications. Um, and then after that, it is a, it's a murderer's row of failed and defunct companies uh, up until about 2011. So, yeah, I have plenty of experience with closing studio closures. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ever since this last one, um, I was lucky enough to get a contract gig. I am now an art director. Mm. So that, yeah. I, that's fun. I get a cool. title. Um, so with introductions out of the way, we jump into the heart of the episode, which is going over, assessing, and analyzing our most recent studio closure, which is the closure of, if you've been following along in our podcast, we've been calling it quote-unquote sprockets, but that is Iron Tiger. So we go over the recent closure of Iron Tiger Studios. Um, so could one of you guys kind of just, as an overview, kind of explain what happened as far as the studio closure goes, and, and or maybe, I guess... First question, like, what about this though? This closure was unique, or or kind of stood out to you, as opposed to previous closures that you've been a part of. And any of one of you can take that first. Um, I'll I'll start. Uh, so, like other studio closures I've worked with, pretty much they were on the smaller side, and in those companies, a lot of times I was a little bit more involved in the financials, um, and so I had a little bit more of a heads up of like okay, we probably have money for like three more months. So like, this is what's going to happen. And so there was um, pretty much like, especially one other place that I had worked, I, I oversaw the art department. So I was definitely involved with more of their finances and like hiring people, contract, all that fun stuff. Um, so there was definitely more of a heads up of like, something is happening. Like we cut back on like snacks and there's different things where they try to trim the budget pretty much. And it was understandable because there wasn't a huge financial backing behind some of these studios. Whereas with Iron Tiger, you know, they're backed by NCSoft, which is a Korean company. And there was a lot more finance that could be thrown around. So even though for me, some of the same like warning signs started popping up, I was still a little surprised because to me, it felt like a larger investment from a larger corporation. So there was money but it was more about how they chose to manage it. So I think that was the surprise for me was that even with the financial backing, they decided, okay, we still need to change this direction. And here's Jim's take on that. Uh, For me, you know, I, I, so I was having difficulty getting email that day. So I didn't get the notification that we got, that everybody got what, where to go and what's happening. So I had, you know, two of our cohorts, Wade and Justin come knock on my door saying, oh, what's happened to you? And I'm like, dude, you know, what the hell? I have no idea what's going on. And then I saw the email and I went to the meeting that I was supposed to go. And, you know, I was told about the whole way things were working out. And, and uh, you know, I just counted myself lucky, to be honest, that, uh, you know, they were going to keep me on for the transition period. And, and uh, when I know a lot of people got let go that particular day and that was rough. Um, I What I've gathered since is that, it's not so much about the studio ourselves, more or less about the way that the company is functioning and with political implications with the people in Korea and the people in America and, and uh, you know, perceptions on both sides. And, and so I don't know all the details, but um, I was, wouldn't say I was blindsided by it after, you know, we were trying to get that push for uh, – a soft launch to happen that never did. And, and that was kind of the biggest indicator to me that something was not quite right. And, uh, um, yeah. but, but, you know, the fact that, you know, what we were working on is still in production at what I call a cheaper studio. Um, <laughs> and the fact that, you know, we're getting, you know, we're getting let go despite, you know, that yes, like Miranda said, there was, tons of funding for this. It had nothing to do with funding. It had to do with, with the, you know, inner workings of the company and, and the executive, you know, core. And rather than, you know, we we're just kind of, you know, us and other studios that were affected by, by layoffs and stuff. I think we're just kind of casualties of war and, and, you know, it, it could have gone different ways, I think, but, you know, ultimately I think whatever 
you know, machinations were playing out at the executive level kind of worked out the way they did. And unfortunately, we were, you know, kind of all casualties of that. Right. Interesting. Yeah, for uh, sure. I mean, like like Mira said, like all the telltale signs were there for months ahead of time. Um, but they had it happened so gradually, but at the same time, so sudden. And I guess what I mean by that is there was no communication. And I think that was what, uh, for this closure has been so different. Um, is just how not really blindsided. Cause I think everybody had a feeling in the air, especially like Jim said, after soft launch or failed soft launch and not hearing anything back. I think there was a good feeling in the air about, what was likely to happen, but because there was no communication, no one could say for sure. It was so. Yeah, communication is extremely important. Indication is anything you know that all of the you know emails from you know even after you know they closed down Carbine, you know we we heard you know you know we're still trying to push forward and you know we're proud of this project blah 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 and you know i was kind of irritated towards the end there while we were all hanging out for the transition and we're getting still getting emails from executives saying you know hey and this game is that we've been working on is about to come out and it's like yeah great and nobody's gonna you know nobody who's really an employee is going to be working on it from this point forward so it's a lot of like stringing people along because like Mm -hmm. whereas other places that i've worked at and particularly the last studio i was at uh, not iron tiger the one prior that closed, there was like a progression of things getting worse and there was a momentum towards it. And then it's like, you know, you get little glimmers of hope, but it's not that momentum didn't change. Whereas with iron tiger, it's like, you kind of got a hit and then you're like, well, something else Mm -hmm. would kind of counterbalance it. And you're like, well, this is odd. And you'd get another hit, but then you, that something was wrong. Mm. And then something else would happen where you're like, well, if something's wrong, why did you do like why did this happen? And right, so there's right. a lot of ups and downs, like just really kind of in limbo, honestly, for a while. And right. not only yeah. with the the soft launch, you know, the attitude change after soft launch, but then the way some of the more corporate individuals talk about things or choose no longer to do things is mm-hmm. like other warning signs and like budgetary cuts and oh we aren't going to hire people but we aren't going to say we need this but we aren't going to say why we can't hire somebody so it's just like really weird yeah All but right. th- none of that really happened i mean we were still bringing some people in as far as i knew and yeah. uh you know i mean where i was sitting i was next to the the phone booth area so i would often hear the recruiter guy calling other people for you know to, to hire on so you know, I felt, I thought that was encouraging. I thought the right. fact that we were we were adding new features until the day we were told that you yeah. know, oh, seriously, man. right? You know, I mean, <laughs> you were in those meetings too. Yeah. Um, so with 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 uh, you guys mentioned like Amir mentioned like the corporate versus I guess the other side would be the development team or development leadership. What was the miscommunication between those two or between like? development leadership and the people who are working on the actual product. I think there was a disconnect between the development teams, you know, the, the, you know, our head guy versus, you know, the guy that he's reports to or whomever. I think, I think, you know, he was, he was cut out of the, you know, information line for as long as possible as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. It was, uh, I mean, it was, there's always like that kind of, it's almost like two different, you have two different minds, especially as a, a big company like that, because you can't be doom and gloom. You have to be somewhat upbeat. Mm-hmm. You want to motivate people, but at the same time, you can't necessarily tell them the truth. So I feel like we got definitely got caught in the middle of that. Um, and it, you know, like I said, like I've I've been part of many studio closures, right. and it's always that's always kind of the way. Like you learn to listen for certain cues, like. Like there's certain th- like vocabulary that you you hear in the industry and like, especially starting out, it starts with like you know this will be great on your resume. You can get a job anywhere after this sort of talk. Like <laughs> that's rough. Well, I mean, like uh-huh. that's that's an obviously telltale sign. Like you're going to be underpaid or overworked or both. Um, right. That's just kind of how it's going to be. And as you as you you know progress in the industry and have more jobs, um, because. I mean, honestly, unless you're lucky, you're not staying at one for 12, 15 years. Right. Um, you start to learn other other keywords that come up, and I think this this one was just the most confusing because it was it was they're talking out of two sides of their mouth. Um, 
right? Right. I have a random so. question or more more theoretical talk uh, about that um, communication piece. And I'm wondering if you guys have any ideas as to why studios, corporations, executives are so hesitant to be more open about a studio closure. If it's like bound to happen, we um, all know it's going to happen. What what's the, what was the hesitation? Well, I I can tell you from experience, like a lot of times it's because you're on the bubble. Like you don't know it could go either one one way or another. Um, I've been on teams where, you know, all we had to do was just kind of get push it over the line and and see where it went. Uh, but if you tell people, you know, three four months ahead of time that things are rough, um, we don't know if we're going to make pay this month. Like I, I people are just going to leave. Um, and a lot of those times you need those people to do that work. Samira had a very interesting uh, so and unique experience kind of revolving around this topic as well. And she shares that. There was one studio I worked at, uh, before Iron Tiger, which actually the CEO, I mean, it was a smaller, it was like under 50 people, but the CEO was actually really transparent about the, uh, company's finances. And, um, basically, well, up into a certain point, pretty much with everyone, but there was, so like I knew at that place, like I being in charge of the art department, um, I knew ahead of time a little bit before everyone else that like things probably weren't going to work out. Um, but it was pretty much like a two week to a month buffer before he kind of told everyone else, like we have like three months. So if this loan and this finance doesn't work, we're going to be like, everyone's going to be out of a job pretty much. And so he, the way that that CEO approached it was that like, he was like, we're all professionals. We're all adults. So like, let's be mature about this. This is like the reality of like trying to run a business. And so from that point, like I know for, for myself and a lot of other people who work there, like we appreciated the heads up. Cause we we're like, all right, like what do we need to get to put together? Um, and that time gave me time, even though it might have been a couple of months, it gave me time to prepare like recommendation letters for everyone and to reach out to my connection saying, hey, uh, what positions do you have available? And so that was helpful in that when we ended up having layoffs, but to get pretty much like 90% of the art department placed in another company right when it happened. Right. Um, so that was helpful, but there's still... The dis there's still like the discrepancy of like, you know, it it is hard to tell people, especially in the Bay Area, because it's so expensive. And it's like if you have families and like all this other stuff, you're like, you you need to know what's going on. And so like he was able to do that because it was a smaller company. But I can imagine like the mass panic <laughs> that could happen from telling a larger studio of like, hey, by the way, you got like three months and then, you know. We're canning everyone. Right. Cool. Uh, yeah. And I wonder if, if, if the, the mindset around that would change or could change when you're talking about a closure versus a layoff uh, where we you know where you could be more transparent in one versus the other. Um, cause if, you, cause layoffs, I think you'll know ahead of time. You're like, okay, I know we need to let some, we, the, you know, the numbers just don't make sense. Uh, even if we need to reach our goal, we'll have some kind of, idea as to what we need to reach that goal. So uh, after a fair really amount of rambling on my part, I eventually asked the panel to go into a little bit more detail on this concept of a transition team, uh, which kind of was created after the initial round of layoffs. So the three of them kind of go into a little bit more details on what happened yeah, during that know. period. I don't know, honestly. <laughs> well, for me, I think, you know, the, the game is far enough along. We brought it to a certain point and, you know, the company sees it as a viable property. And, you know, the people that got it to be a viable property are no longer necessary because we can pay people in Eastern Europe less money to do the same job. You know, it's already at a quality that they need. And now it's just a matter of getting it out the door and, and getting it done effectively, probably just working on whatever. They're, they're probably not going to add any more features. They're probably not going to add any more content. It's just about getting it to a refined state enough to to get it out the door. And, you know, again, I think there were political machinations going on above our pay grade that we didn't – we weren't privy to. And, and uh, you know, and I think, again, we were just kind of casualties of that. There's also uh, – like certain legal things too. Like if they just laid everyone off right off the bat, instead of doing it in a section, there might've been like legal repercussions more or less too. 
Um, and then giving everyone else the heads up that like, Hey, by the way, you will get laid off, just delayed off more or less. Right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah, I don't know. I, this is the only, the, the one thing I will say that's unique about this closure is that the project is living on. Right. And that, I've never seen that happen. Right. This um, is totally unique in that respect. I, w- I would have to agree. It's rough too. Cause like, I mean, I mean, even like the bigger companies, usually the calculation is one like, okay, we've sunk this much money in the development. We're talking about doubling that cost in advertising. Are right. we going to make our money back on that? Right. And if the answer is no, the project's done. Like they don't even care. They're not going to, it's not even a matter of like, oh, we're going to recoup some. It's like, it's not even worth the effort. We're not even going to advertise it. So no one's going to buy it anyway. So bleh. project done. Everybody's gone. Yeah. But it's, it seems like such a huge waste of development cost. I mean, how much, you know, how much does it cost to, to keep people on for, you know, a couple years at a time or more in some cases when, and then they're just going to turn around and kill the project. You know, that just doesn't make a lot of strategic sense or economic sense. You know, you're, you know, you're paying, you know, in some cases at the EA gig was probably, you know, millions of dollars in development costs, you know, and on a regular. Some of that can too, like, it depends on how, like their, their, their council or their board, like if it, and because when you lay off people, it looks like, you saved money for that quarter too. So like the financial logistics of like that political game of finances is such another Mm -hmm. key thing too. And we've seen that happen over and over with companies like Zynga or machine zone or some of the other studios too, where they, they may launch a game and then they cut that whole team and it looks like they doubled their profits because not only is the game doing well, but now you're not paying all this, this development team as well. Yeah, Zynga is a rather unique character, though. They are very unto themselves. I I was there for about a year as a contractor, and and uh, you know they say you get you know the lunch is free, but it's not free. It's built back to teams. It's yeah. built, you know, and you know as the audio as an audio person there, there was absolutely no incentive for their internal dev teams to use the internal audio department because there were. What? you know producers who were part of our group right so as as an audio person we were part of a service group which serves the entire Mm, company right so they weren't just paying for us they were paying for all these producers for visual arts that were folded in with our cost so we would say it costs x to produce this much content you know and then they would say oh well that's actually x plus y you know and You know, it was cheaper for them to pay me as an independent contractor outside of the structure of their company to do the same work as it was yeah. to have me on site going to meetings, you know, and taking advantage of, of you know. All the benefits. Right, right. So we talk a little bit more about Zynga and a lot of the financial decisions, I guess, the executives are making behind the scenes. Uh, but then I bring it back and I actually ask a, a more touchy, touchy question about what the panel thought brought about the official demise of Iron Tiger Studios. And we go yeah, into that. I can't, I can't speak really to, I can't. Yeah, we get it. You can't. Um, but I can tell you what the majority of studios that close, close for a few major reasons. One of which is cost, but more so than that, it's being able to deliver on what you promise. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can't, if you consistently miss milestones, miss dates, go over budget, your your days are numbered. There, there's not many people out there that are willing to fund an endless, just an endless endless dev cycle um, without any kind of, at least some kind of guarantee, if not improvement. You know, um, every studio that I've been a part of that closed, with a couple of exceptions. Um, they took too long and they, they, un, they overpromised and underdelivered, Um, and that was the main calculus in dropping whatever project and whatever studio that was. Um, and that's just something that like, you're only as good as your last game. And while you're making that game, you're only as good as your last milestone. And that's something that has always held true anywhere I've been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To go add on to that, like that's completely true. There is also, so for me, when I came to Iron Tiger, uh, I didn't realize how much of the development team didn't have any, had never shipped on mobile before. Mm. And so there was a lot of not only 
coming from working, like I worked on, you know, desktop and various other game platforms as well, console, but my last handful of games were all on mobile and they, the production turnaround was literally a year, maybe, maybe (laughs) two years. And so coming to a studio where they're like, oh, we've been working on this for like years. I was like, holy crap, like what is going on? But not only that, but there is little things that having been involved before, I was like, this is going to be an issue when you guys try to launch the fact that it took so long for certain elements to happen for mobile development and to get out the door. Like from my point of view, I saw so much bloat and so many things that either certain people on the development team or higher up didn't want to address right now that to me were crazy. Um, And so it felt like the certain parts of the team were learning as they were going and it's that's one thing to do if the finances want to say, hey, you could you know take as long as you need to get it out the door and allow them to explore that. But on the other hand, too, like it's you need to deliver a, a product. Um, mm-hmm. So for, for me, that was just kind of like mind blowing. And when I, I had a slight not, not heart attack when I first joined, but I was like, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit of anxiety because it's like. There's so many things that were not in place for mobile um, publishing that it was just surprising. But then it's also when coming from my previous studio, I was like, I'm not involved in any of that decision making or need to be involved or, you know, I could say my two cents, but ultimately it's not up to me or or anything like that. So it's like you just let it go. But there was a lot of signs as far as like development bloat from coming from mobile that were very concerning. Yeah. Well, there was, you know, there were some other factors there too. I know that, you know, there were two teams at the, at, at Iron Tiger and then there was one team. And so, you know, a lot of people got folded into, you know, this program or this game. And, and, uh, but I also felt that the game itself, you know, having worked on previous mobile titles, that it was very ambitious. You know, I've done a lot of casual and mobile stuff, and and that stuff, yeah, the 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 dev time on it is really really quick. And you know, my part in that um, is no never more than a couple of months. You know, if it's if it's a you know a good sized title, um, I did this I did this job for this company in in the UK called Super Solid, and um, you know. It was, it was, I think I spent maybe three months total on that. And I maybe produced, I don't know, a couple hundred sounds and some music. And, um, you know, that was a very, very short cycle. It was, you know, it was out literally a month after I gave my last, uh, my last delivery to them. Um, but when I saw the game that we were working on at Iron Tiger, I'm like, well, well, this is not exactly your, your run of the mill mobile title. It's very ambitious. You know, it's 3d it's, it's got multiple locations. Uh, whoops. So Jim drops a few NDA type items here so that's all getting scratched from the record uh we'll pick up here in a bit i felt like because you know and 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 this this studio hadn't shipped anything so not that that was a deterrent but you know it was kind of a startup and the fact that you know here you've got this fresh studio um I was a little bit disconcerted about the fact that there had been two titles in development and they killed one and, and, you know, kind of folded parts of that team into the other team. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, and, uh, you know, so I really didn't see that as a red flag. I just felt like they were trying to, you know, refine what they were trying to do and then put their concentration on the one project. And, you know, the fact that it, they intend to get it out is another, you know, very positive aspect, you know, in terms of the project. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I think it's 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 a combination of those two things. I think it's the you know the the executive stuff coupled with the fact that you know there was a little bit of of you know un, not not no not unfocused, but just you know there was a lot of gray area, especially you know when I first started there in terms of you know who was working, and there was like. When I initially started, there was a lot of uh, people leaving, you know, and I was right. kind of questioning that and kind of going, oh, what, you know, what's going on? And every, oh, there was another, you know, team and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so, but you yeah, know. You, you, sorry, you mentioned like just the fact that the studio was uh, a start, essentially a startup. It's it's building everything from the ground up. Right. And, and not, not, not only that, it's like 
from the parent company being an Eastern company and now it's doing, trying to start operations in the West. So it's like a complete different, or it's like a, a completely new paradigm for the company to, to start in mobile as well. So a completely different platform. Right, right. Yeah. It was, uh, it's something different than what they were used to doing. And, and, you know, there's going to be some, you know, growing pains along the way. And, and, you know, there, I thought, I was thinking that was just kind of what we were experiencing rather than, you know, Oh yeah. You know what? We're just going to kill it. Well, there, there's something to add on to that too. And a large part of mobile development is it depends on trends and something that can work for one or two years definitely won't work the next. So the fact right. too, that development took so long, your, your, your audience, your demographic people, new people who come in to either like teenagers, for example, or anything like that from the time you started. And then over the course of four years, they may be in their early 20s. So it's like what right. your target audience is already shifted and grown. But the other thing yeah. too is from previous companies I was coming from, um, there was a huge push by a lot of Eastern companies, Tencent, Nexon, other studios as well, where they try to actually get a Western hold on the market. Um, and we saw this with Nexon on Gree, where they closed down all of their Western locations and pulled out yeah. financially, oh, even in studios that they had actually purchased a large majority share in, they took it as a loss instead yeah. of trying and to, been, and then they'd been successful. Some of right, them had been successful. Too. Right. So you get this domino effect and this all happened before Iron Tiger. There was, it was right. pretty much over the course of a year or two years prior where there was a domino effect of all these other Eastern studios pulling out. So when you pay attention to that and then you see it kind of like slightly foreshadows because you're like, all right, right are they going to do the same thing? Because a lot of these Eastern companies are super interlocked with each other in, re in regards to their relations, but also their finances too. Um, mm -hmm. So it's just like there's other signs, not just development too. Right. Yeah. My, so, my first studio closure was from Sega, you know, and again, that's a Japanese company with operations in, in America. And basically, you know, I was given the go ahead to build edit suites on site in our building. And, you know, and it wasn't cheap, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, I invested a lot of money in equipment and stuff. And, you know, my boss and I, we had a five-year plan and we were going to support all of Sega of America's development, you know, in terms of audio. And, you know, we shipped Iron Man 2 and, you know, everybody got an email on Friday, you know, hey, we're going to close down in a month and here's the deal. And, you know, yeah. thank you for your work. And that's the way it is. Right. And, uh, you know, they basically what, what ended up happening was, is that they just simply shut down development in America. Right. Yeah. You know, they, they stuck with Japan and, and the UK. Yeah. So Miranda, you were kind of touching on this, but I kind of wanted to just add the explicit question of like, Knowing what you know, or maybe just even back then, would there would there be anything differently that you would do to like that you think would maybe change the course of uh, the studio? So, like, so, oh, for for Iron Tiger specifically, uh, or just in general? <laughs> let's let's start with Iron Tiger in particular, and then we can kind of branch off and do more general just ideas on how to prevent stuff like this. So, with larger studios like Iron Tiger, like. There's, there's not as I could talk to somebody until I'm blue in the face, but ultimately like that financial decision, they're not going to look to me as a UI UX designer to be like, oh, right, we should value what you're saying. Um, so it's like, I'm talking to a wall more or less. And that's where like you can vent and you could kind of complain, but understanding those kind of financial structures where, where like my place essentially is not going to make a difference. Um, so whereas like other, you know, other studio I've worked at before Iron Tiger, I was very much involved with our executives. And so what I had to say affected their decisions. Um, so there it was the place to say things, to try to cater and how things were handled. But Iron Tiger, that wasn't the case. I mean, it's a different studio, different finance, like different culture. Um, so just understanding those dynamics where you can try to say something, um, to ask questions or prod is you will, you need to be aware, but as far as like trying to do anything different to prevent it, it's not so much trying to prevent it, but I think people get comfortable and you should always be not only with your work, but as a person always pushing forward and trying to better yourself. So you shouldn't be complacent, whether that's in your life or in your work. 
And I think a lot of people, when they get jobs and they think there, there is the ideal attitude of like, oh, maybe I could be here for oh. years. So yeah, I think a lot of people get complacent when they start a new job. And especially with game development, you can't do that. So it's not so much trying to say, hey, how can we prevent the studio from closing? It's what can I do to prepare myself? Um, and to ensure like your own security and you essentially always have a foot in some door. <laughs> um, so when I go places where essentially I have work with people who are a little bit more junior than me or like fresh out of college or whatever, and they're super excited by everything. It's like, I want to dash your hopes and dreams, but you need to have your, your shit together and you need right. to be aggressive about like, be prepared and always try to push yourself to be better. Like that's how these situations don't affect you as severely as they could. Yeah, no, that's totally true. I mean, man, having been a contractor and I know Jim probably has dealt with this before too. Like you go into a bigger company as a contractor, like someone who's just a, basically a hired gun and you're hungry. Cause you're always hungry. Like you're either working to get that other job. You're working hard as hell at your current job uh, or, or a combination of the two. And you get to a place where people have been there for like eight years and you're just like, Oh man, you guys, you guys just lost the hunger. Like you just, you're hiding basically. You yeah, found I, I, a, Find a way just to be comfortable um, and take it, taking what you have for granted um, happens a lot. <laughs> it does. It can. Um, before, uh, around about uh, two, two, 2015, I started working as a contractor for Sony PlayStation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, two of the guys there, well, everybody that I worked with, with the exception of the voice guy uh, on the audio team there, had been there for at least eight years. And in, two, in a couple of cases, there were two 10-year anniversaries while I was there. Um, and I can't say that those guys weren't pushing because those guys really pushed me hard. Um, it was one of the best experiences that I've had in my career since, you know, since leaving LucasArts. And, and that was a great was, audio department. I got to work with them once. Oh, yeah. No, fantastic. They, all those guys are really, really tremendous. I can't say enough good things about working with those guys. And, and I learned a tremendous amount while I was there. And it got me back in the console game. And that was, you know, that was something that was really, really important to me. Um, having said that, um, the manager that I was reporting to, who had been there for 10 years, was let go after I got let go from uh, – from EA around the same time. And so that was unfortunate because he was a real, you know, he was a real stickler and he, you know, he was, he was really hard on me when I first got there and he was kind of a tough read in terms of, of, um, you know, trying to figure out what he wanted. But once I realized his personality and how he was just kind of very dry and droll, um, you know, it got to be the point to where, okay, I, I got this guy. And he actually ended up giving me a raise as a contractor, which was unusual. I mean, wow. yeah, exactly. And I thought, you know, he was really happy with my work. And he goes, you know, we want to, you know, but he was also very frank. He's like, we're never going to be able to offer a senior guy a full-time position. And that was really kind of, you know, it was frank as hell, but it was, it was disheartening. And you don't usually hear that kind of stuff from managers, you know, no. um, no. you know, so I thought that was rather unusual, but the, to be honest, having been a full-time employee and and a contractor, I worked more steadily for for Sony as a contractor than I have in my last two permanent positions. Yeah. Isn't that something? <laughs> yeah. So I, I got speaking of you know, I just wanted to touch and transition kind of as we're running short on time. Talk about the I guess the aftermath of this closure and how it's affected each and every one of you. Um, I guess what was the process like? You know, there was like you said, there was a set of us that kind of were transition part of the transition team and kind of moved forward with the project after the initial round of layoff. And then there was the other side that was laid off immediately. How was the process for you looking for jobs after, you know, being terminated? Uh, I'll start on that one since I was in the group that got laid off immediately. (laughs) Um, So I, you know, kind of with my attitude, like I, I try to stay prepared. Um, I had actually backed all my stuff up uh, that morning. Smarty pants. (laughs) (laughs) um and so i was like all right i'm I'm good um but like i i hustle like i'm having been through it a couple times on both sides either being laid off or being on the side that has to decide like all right who gets laid off um i am very aggressive afterwards and i actually had a job two weeks after 
Um, Way to go. So part of that too is like hitting up all my connections, making sure everything's up to date. But like I, I definitely hustle um, after those situations happen. So I started work. I got a job about, yeah, about two weeks after and then started a month on the dot pretty much um, after the, mm. the layoff. And that goes into as well, like I knew for myself with my skill set, I can work in other industries. So coming from games and then actually transitioning to drone, uh, especially autonomous drones was, it's a challenge, but at the same time too, you just have to be prepared, be comfortable being uncomfortable more or less and be prepared to like, you have to think on your feet. And so it's just like, all right, it's not forever. Like, I'm not going to say buy the games forever. <laughs> but I mean, like for now, you're like, all right, this is a new adventure. We're going to try this out and enjoy it along the way while you can. And I just want to dig into that a little bit deeper is like what what went into the decision making process as far as like whether you should leave game development? So um, I actually had offers from other studios uh, that were game studios, but they were they were mobile game as well. And so pretty much. The, the company I'm at now um, that does autonomous drones, so uh, Sean Levitino <laughs> is there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so he hit me up about the position that they had been looking for a UI UX designer actually for about 10 months and hadn't wow. been able to find somebody suitable. And so they were, he was like, let me bring you in. I had an initial conversation with them and then a full interview process with them. And it was you know, I was very upfront with them. Like I'm coming from games, but here's how I problem solve and how I approach things. It's not, you know, a linear set of skills. And so that worked out really well. But at the same time too, I had an off, you know, had offers from game studios and I had to sit down and, you know, I talked to my husband about like, all right, I have these things on the table. What do I do? Um, But it's not forever. And the drone company had a lot of unique, interesting challenges um, for me, as a UX designer, solving with public perception of how people perceive drones, especially autonomy, where you know you tell it to go do things and it does it on its own. So there was a different set of challenges than I was used to for dealing with the past several years. So for me, that was really interesting. And also the attitude of it's not forever is, I think, really important. So I could go and do this and explore and, you know, if I like it, maybe I'll stay there for, you know, however long it lasts or anything like that. But it's not forever. And that's something I think people need to be aware of is if you choose to leave, there should be no shame or guilt for choosing to do so. All right. Well, actually, last question. Since <laughs> you did a lot of jumping in and out of game dev uh, for our listeners, how difficult was it for you to get back into game dev when you left before? And do you feel like it's going to be even more difficult to come back later? Uh, so I did a little bit of defense contracting um, in between and it wasn't, I don't feel like it was difficult to get back in. And then even at this point now, because I am still, I, I love, I love games. Like that's never going to go away from my life. So, and also so many of my friends are still in game development so I don't feel like it's necessarily going to be harder. I think what's going to happen is that I'll be looking for different things in those positions if I choose to go back to game development. So this question I asked to all three panelists, and that's basically just what's life been like after the studio closure? So kind of the aftermath of the closure and how their job hunt has been. Jim was the next way in. Okay, well, you know, as soon as the word came down, I started looking. You know, we had a, a nice uh, meeting with a bunch of devil, uh, you know, people. We had a little, uh, little job fair over at the hotel nearby, and and uh, I probably applied with every company there. Um, I would say since since we got notification of the shutdown that uh, I've probably applied to twenty five different positions in the last three months, and some have contacted me and some I found um, so far nothing has stuck um, had a couple of really good interviews you know spent all day at one company and you know basically 1130 to 6 and the, the manager was really really positive and then crickets um, uh, yeah so I've been pinged by probably about a half a dozen uh, recruiters in that time nothing has gone through um, a couple of the guys that we worked with are going to a studio that declined me um, you know which I think is kind of interesting you know and and you know I don't think it's 
my work or my history or anything. I mean, I've worked for some name companies. You know, I've worked for LucasArts. I've worked for Activision. I've worked for Sega. I've worked for Walt Disney. I've worked for, you know, Zynga. I mean, these are names, right? Um, and, you know, I don't know if it's, if it puts people off. I don't know if it's because I'm super experienced. Uh, like I said, I had two permanent positions in the last year and a half, both of which ended in studio, studio closures and I got more time, uh, you know, at, consecutively at Sony as a contractor. Um, you know, I've, since my first studio closure in 2010, it's been not a struggle, but it's been a lot of work to stay employed in games. And I think what I do is particularly, um, specific, you know, and, and because of where I am in, in the production line, you know, I'm usually kind of like the last in line before it goes to QA. And so, you know, and they're video games, they're not audio games. So, you know, audio doesn't always get the love that it necessarily deserves, you know. And then again, you know, because I've worked for a lot of name companies and I, you know, I, I like to work in, on console titles more than anything else. And, and uh, you know, I've got a lot of experience with those. And, and, you know, I will say that when Sega shut down in 2010, um, that was kind of following the real big influx of mobile. And I think the industry didn't know how to deal with, the new platforms and you know it was a big there was a big shakeup because developers didn't know how they were going to handle oh well you know how are we going to work on this how are we going to work you know there's a big encroachment on you know everybody's gaming time from a lot of different types of platforms and i think you know the industry at that time didn't know how to deal with it i think it evened itself out um there were not a lot of jobs for senior guys over that time and as time went on, now there have been because I think, you know, when you're working on larger scale titles, you know, they want established talent to be able to bring things, you know, in. Right. Um, I, I was lucky. The, the game I worked on at Sony came out on Friday last week. Hey, days gone. Days gone. And so, yeah. So, you know, awesome. that's my that's my first product in, in the marketplace since 2014. You know, so I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, I got pinged last week by two different recruiters from companies. You know, I've applied with companies in Southern California. I've applied for companies in the Bay Area. I've applied for companies in London. You know, I'm just right. kind of all over the place. All over. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, at this point, you know, it's it's been a slog and, and I've had to fight, but you know, it's, you know, it's, I love the work. And that's what it comes down to, you know, you know, Jeff and I, a couple of guys were talking at the office, you know, in the last couple of weeks and, you know, and one guy said, you know, it's, I love the work. It's just the industry sucks. Right. And, and that's the big thing. You know, it's like, I, you know, I get to play with recording gear. I get to make sounds. I, I literally get to make things go boom. And <laughs> it's the people and, too, you know, Right, right, right. I mean, all of you. I mean, I've enjoyed working with all three of you. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, I have mixed feelings. Like I said, I fight myself about, you know, I'm tired of looking for work. You know, what do I got to do to, uh, you know, do I need to start my own company? Right. So here really, again, we know, actually circle back to the same discussion or a very similar discussion that we had in episode 98 with Nick Covington and Dan Moran about senior and lead level game developers running into issues, you know, finding work after a studio closure like this. So if you haven't checked out episode 98, this will be a great time to go back, listen to the episode, and see kind of what our thoughts were about senior and lead level having issues post-closure. I mean, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, yeah, that's senior level and above, like, I don't know. Once you're above, like, senior level, I guess you're considered middle management. So they're the most expendable. Um, you're also the easiest to replace. So it's been tough. Um, yeah, lots of applications out, not a lot of calls back. Um, I, there are, there is interest. Um, but I, like Jim said, like when you're locked into a specific region, it's, it makes it super difficult when that region kind of passes you by, um, or like the industry I've, I've been here for two waves of this industry coming and going. Um, it's never really left like it has certain other areas, but there's definitely a lot slimmer pickings the higher up the tree you go. So it's been difficult, but not as difficult as seeing like, especially a lot of the guys that I was working with and, and like directly managing and, you know, it's, we're an entertainment industry and to a certain extent, the creation of entertainment comes down to what you aren't, um, which means there's a lot of rejection. Um, so seeing guys apply to, yeah, like, like Jim, so 20, 20, 30 places, spending more time doing art tests than they ever would working um, and not even getting a call back. It's been really disheartening to see. 
and rant incoming. Yeah, I don't know what changed in the last 10 years, but it's fucking ridiculous. I I have been working with one recruiter who has actually been communicative and like if there's no news, just tell me there's no news. Right. It's fine. Like right. but touching base means a lot more to a person's psyche and well-being than just piecing out and that's ghosting like a, someone. That's like a whole other right. mental yeah. game in itself is like talking to a recruiter, yeah. talking right. to a company, and then like figuring out the timing. It's the most awkward like no yeah. thing nobody talks about as far as like how to handle your job is how do how do I deal yeah, with this then, application? Like, <laughs> well, especially too, like because recruiters, like I don't, sometimes they don't get information, but oftentimes they don't care. So like, Right, you're just a list. You're on a list of people that they're representing to multiple companies. Yeah, they probably can't just keep track of every single person that they're trying to get a job for. Yeah, so like when you get rejected, especially as an artist, like rejection's fine as long as there's a reason or some kind of like we do critiques all the time. Like we're tearing apart each other's work. We we acknowledge faults and try to overcome them. Without that feedback loop with a recruiter that just ghosts you, it's really disconcerting. It's not even recruiters; it's actual HR departments. It's like yeah. you know, it's yeah. it, you know, hey, I applied for this job. You know, at least some have you know responses. Like um, there was a job at Insomniac that I applied for, a lead audio job, and but then I was recruited by or pinged by the recruiter the next day for a contract position for the same company. Yeah. And <laughs> I got I, I actually received uh, you know, oh well this position has been hired, you know, somebody it was for somebody internal, which you kind of know was gonna kind of was the case, but you still I saw it posted I had to I had to apply for it. Yeah. And and, you know, at least with that you know, it was said, okay, yeah, thank you for, you know, you're interested in the lead audio position, but you know, it's no longer available and that, okay, that's fine. Just tell me that's yeah. great. I, you know, I, th- I'm fine with that. I, you know, and I understand and I've done, you know, this isn't my first radio. I've been through it mm-hmm. just to have the courtesy enough to say, you know, I don't want to keep having to hold out hope that I'm going to hear back from these, these three different companies because they haven't said either way, you know, just let people know if you, if you talk to somebody, if you have an interview with somebody, mm-hmm. you, you know, the least you can do is send them an email if somebody else gets hired for the gig and just say, Oh, you know, thanks for your interest, but we're going another way, right. you know, and that way you're not saying, Oh, well, you know, I haven't heard for these guys. And then, you know, you, 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 you ping them and they're like, Oh, didn't somebody contact you? It's like, no, nobody contacted me. Right. Yeah. I think that probably every, all the recruiters are using like just manual like applications to manage that. And they need to just have like an application that's like, Hey, just send a rejection to everybody on this list or something. I don't yeah, know. Something. I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like, I feel like there's for, especially for larger companies, like whether it's iron tiger or some bigger studio, like insomniac, there's like several hundred applicants. Oh, for uh, sure. So it's kind of like hard to manage that. Yeah. It's just, it's just sad that there's no personal touch, but like, I mean, even when I was doing, I mean, I processed literally thousands of applications for Lucas when I was working there. Um, and I was basically an intern of HR for a year and a half. Um, we would still send out responses like, like even to weirdos, like (laughs) the people that would send in the VHS tapes without, without like signing all the paperwork that they were supposed to to send it in of their like homemade spaghetti box R2D2 and them and their spandex. Like we sent letters to those people thanking them for their interest. Like, Right. That that's just gone. The sheer number of applicants for a lot of these positions too is, is overwhelming. Like what I was oh, getting yeah. at with that with that website. Soundlister.com. Monitors how many people apply for these jobs. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know. Wow. And some of these it's like uh two hundred and fifty applicants. And I'm like, gee, many Christmas. Yeah. You know, you know, who you know, and I've got I've got good credentials, you know. I mean I've made right. some I've made some triple A titles, you know, I've made I've made some titles that have sold multiple millions of copies right. and I'm still having difficulty finding work. That's yeah. true. Yeah, it's crazy. And and I think again, this is another episode. This could be a full episode of just like how to handle the recruitment or, or like job hunts. Uh but I promise to get you guys out on time and I want to end it here. Well, actually last thing you guys <laughs> try to keep it short. But nah. if you guys have any last minute like parting advice or you know, a quick story or antidote that you had while working at Iron Tiger that's like a reminiscence of all the good times you had. If you want to share that now, this would be the perfect time to do so. I think <laughs> no pressure. Feel free to say say no. I, I think for me, my what I tell a lot of people is just that, you know, and enjoy it while you're there. Enjoy the people. To me that's the biggest thing is I like the people and I do it for the people that I work with. 
Um, enjoy your time with them, your good conversations with them, your moments with them and value those as like the good memories. And, you know, hopefully you get a game out the door, but the biggest part of it too is also not to over romanticize it. Be realistic. You need to pay your bill, you know, you need to pay your bills. And so try to stay prepared and always network. Yeah, that's, that's the really good. I'd say, you know, a certain amount of, of, uh, not dispassion, but you know, at least uh, disconnection from the work itself. I mean, you know, when you do something, do something artistic, and you get some negative feedback. You know, if, if you're early in your career, you know, you can really kind of get down and say, oh, you know, but and start explain, explaining why it, you know, you did things and blah blah blah. You know, then you get to a certain point where like, okay, you don't like that. How about this? I can do this. You know, and and it's it's you've got to be able to detach emotionally i think with with you know from not only the project but you know even the companies at this point it's really hard for me to you know i mean i'm always going to do 100 percent plus on my job but it's you know companies don't really care about employees at our level and to a certain degree you know yeah they need us to do the work but you know having gone through this a few times you realize that you know on the executive level, we're just numbers and, you know, and we are, we are an open position and, you know, we need, you know, we perform X task and they need this task done. And then when they're done with that, either they're going to put you on something else or let you go. So that's kind of like where I'm at now. It's like, I've, I've been looking for a job for so long. I finally got a firm permanent position. I don't, I don't have to look for a job, but you're always looking for a job when you're in this industry. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I would, especially coming from the art side, which is more, I mean, not that not like UI and music isn't art, but at least like it's a transferable skill. Um, specifically with the guys that I manage, uh, especially the younger guys, I always tell them that you got to work on your own too. Um, you always got to be putting stuff out there. You always have to be putting yourself out there, um, be it for networking or just going up on art station and posting your stuff up there, post as much personal work as you can stay in practice. Uh, state like hone valuable skills and you won't you won't have as hard a time looking for work um and that's usually my using my advice especially like yeah character artists uh environment artists um art skills aren't very transferable anywhere else um like you could go work for film but it's a different beast you're talking about different kinds of tech different kind of problems to solve and different kinds of responsibilities um, and to prove that you can make it in the video game business, you got to work. Um, especially cause yeah, you never know if your project's going to be canceled and all of a sudden you've been somewhere for three years and you have nothing you can legally show anyone. Um, so you got to stay on top of your own stuff. Word. Yeah. That's another issue. That's rough. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks a lot. You three. That was again, Miranda Marquez, Jim Diaz and Jeff Nahashan. Uh, <laughs> thanks again I'm sure the listeners are going to enjoy I really enjoy talking to you guys again I try not to cry try not to cry listeners <laughs> <laughs> I know that's why it's called the dark side of development so they're, I think they're, ment- they're mentally prepared to hear what's going to be said. can we do a light side of development episode we, yeah <laughs> we should I mean that's every other episode of the Depot blog oh, oh, oh I see ooh, ooh. <laughs> I'm just kidding that's just marketing anyway thanks again guys so yeah there you have it that is the dark side of development company closures Anyway, it was an awesome opportunity to talk to those three individuals. I really, really enjoyed it. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed it, maybe. Hopefully. Anyway, if you like the show, like what we've been dealing out, uh, you can visit us and donate on patreon.com slash debuglog. Also, you should definitely join our community, which is on Facebook, and that is the Debug Lounge. Just go to Facebook and search for the Debug Lounge and request an invite, and we will accept you within a matter of of minutes maybe a day um outside of that we also have our discord official discord channel so go discord or actually go to the facebook group and you'll find a link to our discord and you can join it there anyway i hope you enjoyed this episode this new flavor of editing i might not ever do this again it was tough (laughs) but yeah you can find me on twitter and on the instagram at obeans that's o with an h beans with a z Anyway, peace. It's been real.